One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Esther. Uh, It begins by telling us about a banquet held by King Ahasuerus, better known as King Xerxes, and he's the king of Persia. And at this banquet, after the king is feeling good from, quote, drinking some wine, uh, he summons his queen to come to the feast so that he might show her off a little bit, right? Queen Vashti, we are told, is very beautiful. But apparently she didn't want to be gawked at, and so she refuses to obey the king's command. Obviously, this makes the king a little bit angry. And so he effectively divorces her and terminates her queenship by decreeing that she could never again enter his presence. After that, some time passes, and the king decides, you know what, I kind of miss Vashti. And so to fill the void, his advisors advise him to have a beauty pageant. And the winner of the beauty pageant will be crowned the new queen. At this point, we are introduced to a faithful Jewish man named Mordecai, who has adopted his deceased brother and sister-in-law's daughter, Esther. Esther is described as having a beautiful figure and being lovely to look at. Consequently, she is taken to the king's palace and made a participant in said beauty pageant. Long story short, she ends up queen. At this point, the story's real drama begins to unfold. Mordecai, because he is a Jew, refuses to bow down to an official named Haman. As a result, Haman uh, sets out to eliminate all the Jews in in Persia. And so he gets the king to authorize this plan to exterminate them. And when Haman's decree becomes public, all the Jews begin to mourn. And Mordecai, knowing that Esther is in a position of power and prominence, appeals to Queen Esther to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Approaching the king is a much bigger deal than we initially think. King Ahasuerus is totally powerful. He's not somebody that you just walk up to. In fact, Esther's response in 4.11 of her book helps us understand. She says, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. Only if the king extends the gold scepter will that person live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Anyone who comes before this king without being summoned is sentenced to death unless he pardons their offense by raising his golden scepter. If Mordecai or any other Jew attempt to go before this king, they will most certainly die. But Esther, she was beloved by the king. Esther would have the chance of living and of being heard. And so the Jewish people need Esther to go before the king on their behalf. After some encouragement from Mordecai, Esther agrees with those immortal words of verse 16 of chapter 4. She says, I will go to the king even if it's against the law and if I perish, I perish. She then prepares to approach the king by calling all the Jews that can be found to fast with and for her. Then after three days of consecration, Esther puts on her best dress and approaches the king, waiting hopefully and expectantly for him to raise that golden scepter in her direction. How do you approach someone that might kill you? How do you get ready to meet the king? 
This question is front and center today as we re-enter the story of the Exodus. We're in chapter 19. And what we're going to do this morning is examine Israel's encounter with the living God at Mount Sinai. Because it is here that the Israelites will learn their identity, God's holiness, and about their need for a mediator. Three parts, God's people, God's holiness, and God's mediator. And the main idea of this section, what we need to learn, is that God brings his people to himself only through his mediator. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would help us to set ourselves underneath of your word and that you would teach us in this time. Holy Spirit, come and uh, illumine our minds and your words that that we might um, gain all that we are supposed to from them. Make me the conduit through which you would speak now and focus all of our uh, attentions and our faculties on you. Thrill us with your presence. Delight us in the truth of your gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first few verses of chapter 19, we read that Israel has finally arrived at their destination, the mountain of God, which is later identified as Mount Sinai in verse 20. And this is a seminal moment in the life of Israel as a people and in the life of Moses. This, to this point, the whole narrative has been driving us, right? To the, the whole narrative has been driving us to this point since we started reading. We've been waiting for God to fulfill his promise to Moses back in verse 12 of chapter 3. Do you remember when Moses was saying, I'm not so sure that I should be the one to go before the people? And God says, this will be a sign to you. I will certainly be with you. This will be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship at this mountain. It's not the most reassuring sign at the time that he's going to succeed. It's like after you succeed, you'll be here to worship. But now it's being fulfilled, and things have come full circle. Moses has returned to where God called and commissioned him from the burning bush. And now God is going to call and commission the people of Israel by giving them their own burning bush experience. Israel has been saved from slavery and into service and relationship with God. And it is here at Sinai they will worship for the rest of the book. The people have set up camp in front of the mountain as their encounter with God begins through Moses, their mediator. We read in verse 3, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The first thing that God is going to have Moses tell Israel is who they are. No longer are they to think of themselves as slaves, but as those whose God has conquered their enemies and carried them to himself on the backs of eagles. I mean, now, even if you're, you're not a nerd like I am, uh, you've got to love this imagery, right? It immediately makes me think of the Hobbit in, in the book version, right? When the heroes are surrounded by goblins, they're about to die, and we read that, that one of them gives a great cry. He had seen a sight that made his heart leap. Dark shapes, small yet majestic, against the distant glow. The eagles, the eagles, he shouted. The eagles are coming. I mean, such a a magnificent deliverance, it's not easily forgotten. 
I mean, it would be emblazoned on uh, their minds. But the Lord is already reminding the people of his power and of his promise-keeping. I think this is because this is the primary thing that is to define the people of Israel, their salvation and the God who has saved them. Yahweh has rescued his people, and he is giving them a new identity. He continues to tell his people who they are and who he is making them in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is proceeding to set forward the terms of their relationship in the future. Because they are his people, the Israelites must listen to the word of God. He's called them to himself for faith and obedience. He expects them to be saved. Now that they're saved, he expects that they will live for his glory. And this is an easy truth, right? Anyone who wants to enjoy fellowship with God must make the basic commitment to do everything that God says. This is true for Christians just as it was true for Israel. Our faith is to be evidenced by our fruit. In other words, the people of God are to be marked by godliness. And God's words here are not dissimilar from Jesus in John 14, 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. The Israelites, like us, are to be defined by love for God and his word. Their obedience to the voice of God is not to be the means of their salvation, but the result of it. I think Peter ends is helpful uh, in understanding this. He writes, The Israelites are not to keep the law in order for God to save them. They've already been saved. God has brought them out of Egypt. The law he now gives them is the subsequent stage in Israel's developing relationship with God. It is what is expected of a people already redeemed. The people do not earn their salvation, but once saved, they are obligated to act in a manner worthy of their high calling. And as they act in a manner worthy of their high calling, look at the blessings they are to receive. Those who believe and obey God will be his treasured possession. Now, a treasured possession can mean a number of things, but here it primarily means that Israel is seen as God's royal property. You see in verse 5, all the earth belongs to the Lord, and out of all the peoples and all the earth, God picks this seemingly insignificant group of people to call his treasure. I think this makes clear that what makes God's people special is not their own intrinsic value, but the value placed on them by God's love. In other words, the people of God are not special because of who they are, but because of the God who is and who has made them his own. They're special because God loves them. Secondly, we see that those who believe and obey will be a kingdom of priests. This is a statement on the manner in which God will use Israel with respect to the rest of the world. Stuart notes, priests stand between God and humans to help bring the humans closer to God and to help dispense God's truth, justice, favor, discipline, and holiness to humans. Israel is called to such a function. God's people are to make the supremacy of God known to the nations through mission and to bring the nations closer to God through prayer. The point is that the way the world comes to know about God is through the people of God. 
this designation, kingdoms, kingdom of priests, is actually really tied closely and should be read together with the next designation, which is a holy nation. And as a holy nation, Israel's life and culture are to be distinctive in such a way that the nations might learn about God from them. The people of God are to be a display of God's glory. See, Israel is chosen not only from all the nations, but chosen for the nations. It is through this holy nation that God is going to bless all the world and bring forth his Messiah. Israel has indeed at this point been given a new identity as God's people, his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, but they fail to live out that identity. Throughout their history, the Israelites will time and time again choose to listen to their own hearts rather than the voice of God. They will fail to keep his covenant. Yet God is faithful to them based on the future obedience of Jesus. And in fact, it's not until the New Testament that this ideal in these verses comes into full fruition. The ideal of Exodus 19, 5, and 6 is realized only in Jesus and his church. Peter ends comments, Christ himself is the fulfillment of God's intention for Israel. He is the fulfillment of 19 verses 5 and 6. That is, Christ is God's treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, and his holy nation, in the sense that through him, the universal call to the nations is finally and fully put into effect. Christ is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He fulfills this role for the very reason Israel did not. He is perfectly obedient to God. The ideal of these verses is also realized in the church because the church is also a light to the Gentiles. It is precisely because Christ is the light that the church, by virtue of our union with him, also fulfills this role. I think this is most easily seen when we read Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, in Christ, we are given a new identity and a new mission. The point that Peter is making is obvious, that the blessed status assigned to Israel in the Old Testament is now the property of the church through Christ, the one who fulfills Israel's destination, Israel's um, call and commission. It is the church who is now charged with the task of living distinctively as a light unto all the nations. We, like Israel, have been saved from slavery to relationship and service. In Christ, we have been given a new identity that we are to live out. We are God's treasured possession, his rescued people who delight to obey his word. I mean, perhaps you've never been told this, but according to that verse we just read in Peter, you are part of the kingdom of priests. That means you get to function as a priest. You're going, who, me? Yeah, yeah, you. This is your responsibility. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are to take the people of the world to God in prayer and God to the people in witness. It's your responsibility to do this, to live the church, all of us together, are to live as a holy nation, shining the light of Christ to all the nations so they might see the supremacy of God and believe. 
at this point, Moses, because God was just telling Moses this stuff to tell the people, he tells the people all this stuff, and the people say, that sounds great, we're going to do all that the Lord has spoken. Uh, they don't, obviously. Uh, but then Moses takes the people's yes back up the mountain to God, and, says, and, and God replies to Moses, he says, that's great, they've agreed to the covenant. And God tells Moses, I am going to come down on the mountain and put on the greatest fireworks and laser show anybody has ever seen. It's going to be awesome. And I'm going to do it so that they'll all believe you when you speak, that they'll trust you. And so before this happens, Moses, you better get them ready. Get them ready. And this is what we read in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people in the Bible, clothing often serves as an outward symbol for someone's inner spiritual condition. And so here it indicates Israel's inward need for cleansing from sin in order to come into the presence of the king. We continue reading verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Uh, verse 15 at the end, there, a little circumlocution for, you know, don't have sex. I'm saying this not because sex is bad, right? We know in the New Testament throughout all the scriptures, sex is a good thing. Uh, but at this point, they're abstaining in order to devote themselves entirely to this meeting with the Lord, right? The, the point of this little section is to tell us that God is going to come down on the mountain and the people need to make the necessary preparations. You don't just waltz into the presence of a king. Meeting God is serious business, and the people must get ready. I mean, think about it. This makes perfect sense. When you meet someone important, or you have something important going on, you get ready for that, right? I immediately think of going on a first date, right? You've been ready for a first date. You, you finally get a one-on-one -on -one meeting with someone that could be the one, and so you make the necessary preparations, right? You want to put your best foot forward, so you wash your clothes. Maybe you buy new ones. You get your hair cut. You shower, you put some perfume on, then you clean your car, you shave, uh, trim your nose hairs if you've got issues there, brush your teeth, clip your nails. You, you do whatever else you can think of to present the most beautiful version of yourself to this other person. Likewise, Israel is getting ready to prepare and meet with the Lord. They are going to put the most beautiful version of themselves before God. Consecration means making holy. It means making acceptable or, or close to God. If the people of Israel were just to come as they are before this holy God, they will die. Right? If you just go as you are on that first date, it's probably not going to work out. Not, the same, not, not as dire, but true. In fact, even consecrated, even made holy, if they get too close to this mountain, they're going to die. I mean, they get warned three times in this chapter, here in verses 12 and 13, as well as in verses 21, 22, and 24. If they or even an animal go beyond the set limits to touch the mountain of God, or even touch someone that's touched the mountain of God, they are to be stoned or shot on sight. 
I mean, it gets more intense after that too. After God's presence actually descends upon the mountain, uh, the death sentence is to be carried out by God himself. The text tells us that he will simply break out against them. He will break out against the one who violates his commandments. I don't know why they need so many warnings here. I mean, maybe they just see Moses going up and down, up and down, and think, this isn't really that big of a deal. We can go up and down. I don't know. Maybe they're just curious, want to see what's going on, or try to get closer to God. But the point is, is that no matter what they do, if they approach God in a way that hasn't been prescribed by God, it is not going to go well for them. Because God is infinitely holy. Holiness has two distinct meanings. Otherness or majesty, he's completely other than, and purity or righteousness. God is completely other than. He is entirely unique. There is no one like him, and he is wholly good. I mean, to be holy, God does not conform to any standard. He sets that standard. Goodness is defined by who God is. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own glory. Love what A.W. Tozer writes on this. He says, God is holy, and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. Since God's first concern for the universe is moral health, that is, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. God must and will destroy that which is unholy and threatens the well-being of his creation. This is why humanity's sin, this is why your sin and my sin is such a big deal. It is an affront to God, an assault on his holiness and the well-being of his creation. We are inherently unholy, and by our rebellion against God, we attempt to loose the world from its holy moorings. God's holiness is dreadful to us because it expresses itself towards sin as consuming wrath. In other words, it threatens to swallow us all. The prophet Isaiah understood this well, right? Remember, he has his revolutionary vision of the holiness of God, and he lets out that pain-filled cry which expresses the feeling of every man who has discovered himself under his disguises and been confronted with the inward sight of the holy whiteness that is God. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees God in the temple, and he says, I am in trouble before this Holy One. How am I not dead yet? Tozer comments again. Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. Friends, let me urge you to see God's holiness and to be disturbed at your sin. Tremble as you ought to. 
verse 16. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke. The text here is so awesome. Literally it says, as for Mount Sinai, smoke, all of it. Because of the Lord, the Lord had come down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke to God, and God answered him in thunder. This is God. He is awe-inspiring in his holiness. His presence melts mountains and splits valleys. He is terrifyingly good and wonderfully awful. His voice causes knees to knock, hairs to stand up, and spines to tingle. Who can stand before this majestic and holy king? Who can bear to approach his holy throne? Only those he brings to himself by his mediator. The people have been saved out of Egypt and brought near to God because they have trusted God by trusting his mediator, Moses. In fact, the whole reason for this encounter with God is to secure the people's hope and trust in Moses. Look at verse 9. We didn't read it earlier, but let's read it together now. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. The people must believe God's mediator. Israel is only going to have relationship with God insofar as they trust in Moses. They're only going to experience God's blessing insofar as they trust his mediator. It is through God's mediator that he brings his people to himself. Look at verse 10 and 14. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Notice who is commanded to make the people holy. That's what consecrated means. Moses is to make the people holy. Notice who it is that consecrates them, who makes them holy. It's Moses. Now, we're not told how he consecrates the people, but I don't think we'd been wrong, be wrong in assuming on the basis of the Mosaic Code, which is about to come on down, that he made the people holy by making a sacrifice. Philip Ryken agrees with me. He writes this, Sacrifice is what God has always required for holiness. Before we can be considered righteous in God's sight, a sacrifice, to must, a sacrifice must be made for our sins. The best way for Moses to consecrate the Israelites, therefore, was to offer a sacrifice for their sins. In order to enter into the presence of God, the people had to believe Moses by trusting him to consecrate or make them holy, and by obeying his words, they had to wash their clothes themselves. Likewise, we can only enter the presence of God if we believe God's mediator, Jesus Christ, by trusting him to make us holy and obeying his word. Like Moses, God confirmed Jesus' role as his mediator by speaking from a cloud on a mountain. Mark 9, verses 2 through 7, read this way. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John 
led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say since they were terrified. Read this, verse 7, a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Like Moses, Jesus is sent to make God's people holy. 1 John 4.10 Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation that is a sacrificial, a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. He is to be the propitiation for our sins. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are made holy and counted as righteous before God. We can approach God with confidence because God's holy wrath broke out, not against us who deserve it, but against his son who did not deserve it. Friends, if we are to feel the wonder of God's grace to us in Christ, we must first feel the terror of his holiness. We must recognize that if we are to go before the king ourselves, we would die. We must understand our need for someone to go before the king on our behalf. Let's return to Esther's story to make this clear. We left Esther dressed in her royal robes, waiting in the courtyard outside of the throne room. And she she is waiting there to see if her law-breaking approach of of the king will bring about her death or save her life and the lives of her Jewish brethren. And in 5-2 of the book of Esther, we read, as she's waiting, The king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard. She won his approval. The king extended the golden scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther, the king asked her? Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. Esther approaches the king as an absolute beauty, dressed in her royal robes, and she receives the king's favor because of the king's love for her. Esther approached the king knowing that she might die because she wanted to save her people from certain death. Friends, this this is what Jesus has done for you, but, but more than. Jesus approached the king of the universe on our behalf knowing that he would die because he wanted to save you and me from certain death. On the cross, Jesus went before the Father knowing that he would perish for our sin, He walked into God's judgment as our substitute, dressed not in his royal robes of righteousness, but in the rags of our sin to be rejected in our place so that we might put on his royal robes, wear them as if they were our own, and receive the king's favor because the king loves the son. God extends the golden scepter of acceptance to us and grants us life and favor because it's been won for us by Jesus. And he gives to us not just half the kingdom, friends. Oh no, our God gives us the whole kingdom. Because sons inherit. And in Christ, we have been called sons of God. We can approach God with awe-filled confidence as absolute beauties because by faith in Christ, we have been adopted into God's own family. 
is on the basis of our relationship with the true and better Moses that God brings us to himself. Jesus is the only mediator that can bring men and women into the happily ever after of God's presence. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for many, a testimony at the proper time. Because of Jesus, we come together each Sunday. And because of Jesus, each Sunday when we come together, we come to something more wonderful and greater than Mount Sinai. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, a gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in the festal gathering, and to the assembly that is gathering or church, ecclesia is the word there, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, this means that when you come to church on Sunday, you are stepping into the celestial gathering that's already going on in heaven. You are joining the hosts of angels and the Christians that have already died and now been perfected and are in the presence of God. You are joining them in the praise of our Holy Father. I mean, this is not a metaphor. It is reality. Tim Chester says, this sounds strange to us, but this physical world is not all there is. There is a heavenly realm that is separate from our earthly realm, but which intersects with it. We are linked to it because we're linked to Jesus. We stand there with him. So whenever we gather on earth, we are also simultaneously gathering in heaven in the presence of God. This supernatural joy belongs to the church because the church belongs to Jesus, and Jesus' word speaks a be- Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for justice against those who have acted unholy. That's you and me. But Jesus' blood cries out for pardon and forgiveness. The blood of Jesus satisfies justice's demands. And it speaks forgiveness and atonement over all who will paint the doorposts of their heart with it. Friends, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The only way that you can approach the holy king of the universe and live, and we will all have to approach him, is if you trust God himself to bring you to himself by putting your faith in his mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created this world to be a place that is good, that reflects your own majesty, a place that is meant to, was meant originally to, to be harmonious, to sing songs of your greatness. But Father, things went awry when we chose to sin instead of listen to your voice. Father, we thank you that instead of ending evil by ending us, that you ended evil by coming yourself and ending yourself on the cross. Father, we thank you that that wasn't the last word, but that indeed you rose from the grave so that by our union with you, what's true of the Lord Jesus is also true of us. We have been crucified under the penalty of your holy wrath. And like Jesus, we live in your presence even now. And we await the fullness of that promise. That we will have resurrected bodies as we live in the resurrection life of the new heavens and the new earth. When you come to finally stomp out evil forever. We thank you for saving us from sin's penalty and sin's power, and we long for the day when we will be delivered from its presence. We trust you that in Christ it's already been done. It's as good as done. Father, in these truths we rejoice together this morning. Together we sing of your grace and of your mercy and of your holiness. And together we pray in the name of your mediator. Jesus. Amen.